Uh, my good morning and greetings to you all this morning. It's such a joy to worship together. Let's turn to God's Word together. Our Old Testament reading is Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. This is God's very Word, so let's give it our careful, full attention now. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched land shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool shall not go astray, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beasts go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And our New Testament text, our sermon text here, Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 38. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he'd come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them 
because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it is our prayer that you would speak until your church is built and your kingdom comes and the earth is filled with your glory. This we pray, asking that you do this by your spirit, even now in us, among us and through us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. What does a king look like? How do you recognize a king. One of my favorite parts of the Lord of the Rings, the books, is, um, is when Aragorn the king comes back to his city, Gondor, right? This, this, is his, this is his country. They haven't had a king for years and years, but he comes back. Uh, he, 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 he leads this great victory in battle. He saves the city of Minas Tirith, the capital there of the city. But then after the battle, uh, uh, he does something which is even more remarkable in the, in the city. He goes to... Uh, the sick and the dying. And he heals them. He speaks comfort to them and he heals them. And, and uh, there's, this, there's this ancient lore in Gondor that says the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. That this is how you'll know who your king is when he comes and he heals the sick and the wounded and the dying. Of course, Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, was... Uh, Drawing quite heavily, I think, on the true story of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, isn't he? Right? This is what we see here in Matthew 9, 27 to 38. Matthew saying, here's how you'll know the King. Here's how you'll recognize him and know that's, yes, that's the one. That's who the Messiah is. It's when you see him healing. When you see him bringing peace and life. That's when you'll know the king has come, this promised king that we've been waiting for for so long in Israel, right? They've been waiting for this king for generation after generation, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, they've been waiting for him. And now he's come, and they see him raising the dead to life. They see him giving blind men their sight, and they see him giving mute men the ability to speak. That's when you'll know your king is here. His kingdom is here. Matthew's been busy, hasn't he, telling us story after story after story of Jesus' miracles since the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So he gets through the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 7, and then from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 9, it's a miracle story after a miracle story. He gives us ten of them in total. The first six highlight Jesus' authority, and then the last four highlight, yes, his authority, but especially his identity as the promised king. And now we're wrapping it all up, this long train of ten miracle stories that we've been going through since chapter 8 and now chapter 9. And Matthew is zeroing in, right? He's saying, okay, now, just in case we've we've lost track of where we are, he's saying, here's what the focus is. He wants us to, to pay attention to this, right? This is what it all means, all these miracles mean, that the king is here. And that his kingdom is here. The salvation for Israel is here. 
And he's challenging, right? Jesus is, as he speaks and as he acts, he's challenging his hearers. Are you, are you, are you all in with this kingdom? Are you going to trust this king? Are you going to follow him? And Matthew's doing the same for his audience, and the Holy Spirit taking this word is doing the same for us. Are you going to trust and submit to and love this king and follow him and, and be all in with him in his kingdom? That's what we're called to in the text here this morning. Two headings as we work through, work through this, this passage. Uh, the first one is this. King Jesus comes with power. King Jesus comes with power. We've seen this already in so many of the miracles, but again, we're brought face to face here with the unequaled sovereign power of Jesus. Matthew gives us two more miracle accounts here. And his, his power, is the, the focus is not just on the kind of general, general power of Jesus, but especially the, his power as the king who's bringing this end-time kingdom to, to Israel. And he brings all this into focus through Jesus' words, uh, excuse me, through the words of the two blind men who follow Jesus here in this first part of the passage. So Jesus has just left the house of the ruler of the synagogue. That's where we were last week. Uh, he goes into the ruler's house, raises his daughter from the dead. Now he's left and he's traveling back to his own house uh, or, or the house where he was staying, one of his disciples perhaps. And as he's traveling back, crowds are following him and, and with these crowds come these two blind men who are shouting loudly, Son of David, have mercy on us. We should pay attention to that title, Son of David. Um, this is only the second time in Matthew's Gospel that it has been used for Jesus. But that doesn't mean that just because it's rare so far that it's unimportant. Actually, perhaps the opposite. Right? Something significant is being said here by calling Jesus Son of David. Do you know where the first time is that we hear Jesus called Son of David in Matthew's Gospel? It's in verse 1 of the whole book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's so important. This is the first thing Matthew tells us about Jesus in the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And now he brings it up again here in chapter 9 as he brings these miracle accounts to their conclusion. What's so important about this title, son of David? Well, it's clearly uh, right, referencing David in the Old Testament. David, who brought down Goliath. David, the great king of Israel, uh, who, who united the, the kingdom, who defeated the enemies, brought peace to Israel, established Jerusalem, paved the way for the building of the temple. David, whose heart was uh, completely devoted to God. God said, here is a man after my own heart. And it's the David that God makes a covenant with in 2 Samuel 7. A promise that one of his descendants will reign over Israel forever and ever. Second um, Samuel 7, God says this to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we see that fulfilled somewhat in David's son Solomon. But right, not, not, not finally, not fully 
And so for the rest of Israel's history, they're looking for this son of David to come and bring this forever kingdom that God has promised. But this king that they're looking for throughout their history isn't just going to be another king who reigns for some 40 years and does a good job, but then he dies and it's on to the next thing. Um, we see this also as, uh, as the Old Testament continues to unfold and God gives his people more information about what kind of king this son of David's going to be and what kind of kingdom he's going to establish, particularly in Isaiah. Think of Isaiah 9, verses 5 Through seven, God is promising the king who will bring an eternal reign of peace. Says this, Isaiah 9, 5 through 7. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So God says to his people through Isaiah, Isaiah 9, Son of David is going to come and he's going to reign forever and ever. Perfect kingdom of peace and righteousness and blessing. Like David, but far far better than David. And we get more. We read this earlier in Isaiah 35. What's going to happen when this king comes? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This king is going to bring a glorious king. He's going to wash away all the effects of sin. Right, he's going to deal with sin and he's going to deal with all the complications that have come with it and all the suffering that it's brought. And so these two blind men here on the road following Jesus see him and say, that's our king. We know he's the son of David and we know the prophecies. We know the scriptures. Then shall the blind see. So they cry out, have mercy on us. Son of David. Jesus waits. He doesn't answer them in the streets. He waits till he gets back to the house. And then they come in after him and he speaks with them quietly there. Uh, probably because that if he, if he answered them in the street, um, responded to this overtly messianic title, um, uh, things would probably start to get really difficult for him. Uh, it would probably be really hard. The crowds that would come around him are already, they're, they're already, it's already hard enough for him to do his ministry as it is. Um, but the messianic fervor, right, the expectation that the Christ is coming is, is running at a fever pitch. And if, if he overtly announces this, at this point in his ministry, he's going to be so hampered, he won't be able to continue his ministry. It's not yet time for that. So he waits till they get back to the house. And then he speaks to them privately. And he asks them a question. And this question that he asks focuses our attention, focuses their attention on, on the main point here. In verse 28, he says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Right? He's saying, do you trust my power to do this? My ability to do this? Now, these blind men have not seen anything Jesus has done. Right? They're going on the accounts they've heard. 
trusting in the testimony of others to what Jesus has done. But they have faith in Christ, and they say, yes, Lord, we do believe you are able to do this. So Jesus touches them and says, according to your faith, let it be to you. And immediately their eyes are opened. Um, It's not that their faith opened their eyes. It's his sovereign power opening their eyes. He touches them. He speaks. And they are immediately made able to see. This is a this is a unique miracle. Um, no one has ever done this before. You read all the Old Testament. Nowhere do you see the eyes of the blind opened. You see prophets of God raising the dead. You see them uh, bringing healing. Uh, you see them providing food miraculously. But nowhere do we read about the eyes of the blind being opened. John 9.32 says this, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This kind of power that Jesus has is so immense, it's hard for us to grasp it, isn't it? Right? The only one who can do this is the one who made the eye. He's the only one who can touch it and say, Be healed. Right? The only one who has this kind of power is the one who said, Let there be light, and there was light in the beginning out of nothing. But that's the kind of power Jesus is wielding here. It's incredible power. Power to do whatever he pleases. No sooner has he done this than a man possessed by a demon and unable to speak is brought to him. And it's fascinating, if you, if, as we read the account, as we read it earlier, perhaps you noticed this, that in verse 32 we read that the mute man is brought to Jesus. In verse 33, we hear of the result of what happened when Jesus uh, spoke and healed this mute man. But there's no actual account of him being healed. It's as though Matthew just, by this point, we're so accustomed to Jesus' awesome power, there's no doubt as to the result. He can just skip that part in the narrative. It's just such an assured result. It's a foregone conclusion that Jesus has the power to do this. It's fascinating here. Again, uh, think, think of, of the power that Jesus is displaying. This man is possessed by a demon. Right? A supernatural being that is far more powerful than any human being. Um, he, this man is possessed by this evil spirit to the point he can't speak. And, and uh, uh, anyone else except Jesus would be completely useless in this situation and unable to do anything to help this man. No one else. The biggest army in the world could do nothing for this man. All the best doctors in the world could do nothing for this man. All that power you could amass, every, every, all human power would be useless to help this demon-possessed mute man. But Jesus, a word, and it's done. That's the kind of power he has. Here's your king, Israel leaves us stunned. It can only be the king who has come to bring healing. Brothers and sisters, there is so much comfort for us in the power of Jesus Christ that we see here. So much comfort for us. So much real, practical comfort. We don't believe in a health and wealth gospel. 
or we don't believe that if you just have enough faith, your life here and now is going to be a smooth, comfortable ride without physical aches and pains. Right? That is not at all what the Bible teaches. But at the same time, we don't believe that Jesus only cares about our souls. He cares about our bodies. And He has power to heal our bodies. But He came to deal with sin. But He also came to deal with the effects of sin. Every last effect of sin. To bring a full salvation to free us not only from sin, but also from all suffering. And as we read these miracle accounts in the Gospels, and perhaps we read them a little bit jealously, I wish that he would come and, and, and heal my husband, wife, child, parent, me. But these are promises to us. It's coming. Right, these, these miracles he's doing here are promises. They're, they're, they're guarantees that the power with which he began his kingdom is the same power with which he's going to finish his kingdom and heal every hurt. So this is such a sweet comfort. Here, here's what it means. Every healing we read here is a guarantee that one day he will come and speak a word and will be raised up. Right, and, and, and all the suffering, all the hurt of every believer in Christ will be erased and, and, and healed. And just th- think of that. All the physical handicaps of every Christian will be gone. Your loved ones who trust in Christ who are suffering will be made whole. Mental suffering will be made right and made whole by Christ. Uh, those with severe sickness, those with depression, those with anxiety, he'll heal it forever one day. Those with grief, he'll, he'll, he'll heal that. Right? Whatever, whatever it might be, someday all of it will be altogether gone because Jesus has the power to do this. How do the people respond to Jesus as they see this awesome power as he comes and heals and brings his kingdom. Well, they, we see the crowds here. The crowds, the multitudes marvel. They say it was never seen like this in Israel. Here's the king. They see him. They recognize him. Here is the end time kingdom of heaven breaking in already. They see that. They recognize it. They, 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 they are in awe of Jesus Christ. But then there's the Pharisees, right? And again, we see their reaction stands out so differently. They look at what Jesus is doing. And they can't deny his power to do it. So they say, well, it must be coming from another source. Right? They're so blind and self-righteous and so ambitious for their own position. And they don't want any challenges to that. So they won't accept what they see. And so they attribute what he's doing to the ruler of the demons. They look at Jesus, heal a blind man, Heal a mute man and say, that's the work of Satan. It's an insane thing to say, isn't it? But that's how sin has blinded them. The Messiah that they say they long for has come and they are going to fight him with everything they have. What should they be doing? They know the scriptures. They're the religious leaders. They should be out preaching. The kingdom of heaven is here. The Christ is here. But instead they're saying, not him. He is the ruler of the demons. It's shocking. 
their refusal to submit and repent and follow Christ. But it's this very thing that Jesus sees that highlights his compassion. Jesus sees this. He sees how the people are lost, how they're oppressed. These multitudes are rejoicing to see him, but the Pharisees, their leaders, the religious leaders, are refusing to submit to him. Jesus sees this, and it moves him to great pity and compassion. And so this is the second thing Matthew's highlighting for us here that we see next in the text. Jesus' compassion. This is our second point. King Jesus comes with compassion. Chapter 9 ends with a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. It's one we've heard before. If you remember, back at the end of Matthew chapter 4, Matthew describes Jesus' ministry in pretty much identical words to the words he uses now at the end of chapter 9. He says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Matthew's just wrapping it up. He's saying, I'm just giving you a small sampling of what Jesus is doing by his power, by his compassion. And the, the, the focus of it all, again, is that here is the king bringing his kingdom. As Jesus goes from town to town, he sees the people flocking to him. Verse 36 tells us then that as he sees them, he is deeply moved with compassion for them. There are not that many places in the Gospels where we get a window into Jesus' emotional life where we see what his emotions were like. Um, but it's clear here, isn't it, that he's not a stoic. Right? He's not a, a, a kind of emotionless man. He's deeply emotional. The language that Matthew uses here, calling him, um, uh, uh, describing him as uh, 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 being full of compassion for the people is highly emotive language. Um, one commentator says, you could, you could put it like this, his heart went out to them. B.B. Warfield, great theologian from the turn of the 20th century, says that the sight of the people here set our Lord's heart throbbing with pity. And isn't it interesting that this is how Matthew wraps up this section, this, all these accounts of Jesus' power, talking about Jesus' pity? He's, he's, he's sounded the note of Jesus' authority and power over and over and over through all these miracles. But as he comes to the end, he says, now, now notice this, most of all, that all of this power is coupled with the compassion of Christ. His deep compassion, his love for sinners, that as great as Jesus' power is, right, we just saw, all-powerful, equal to that is his pity and his compassion and his tender-hearted love for sinners and sufferers. That he's as meek and gentle as he is strong. That the same Messiah, right? We read this already in Isaiah. We, we noticed this already, right? The same Messiah who has the government on his shoulders is also the one who gently leads those who are with young, carries them in his bosom as the good shepherd. Same Christ. Same King. Right? This is the VBS song the kids learned. Jesus, strong, and kind. It's both. It is Jesus full of pity, love, and power. What is it that set Jesus' heart throbbing with pity? 
here. We see it in verse 36. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. In the Bible, uh, this language of shepherding, we've seen this before, is closely connected with leadership and kingship. The metaphor of a shepherd is often used for a king. So Jesus is looking at the people, looking at the Jews, and he's saying they have no godly leadership. Yes, they have leadership of some kind, but it's, it's, it's not godly leadership. It's leadership that's set against their king. Um, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever seen sheep without a shepherd? I haven't. I've seen kids without parents sometimes. And I think it's probably a little bit similar to that. Not quite sure what the best thing for them is, right? Uh, defenseless, um, helpless don't know what's good for them, running headlong into danger. Jesus looks at the Israel, the, Jew, the Jews here, and he says, that is the state they're in. But it's actually worse. But not, not just do they not have godly leaders protecting, leading, providing for them, but their leaders are actually um, acting more like wolves. The shepherds aren't just absent. They're actually exploiting, abusing, and attacking the sheep. Jesus is furious with this. He's the chief shepherd, isn't he? He's come. He's the king. He's the son of David, king of Israel. He's the shepherd. Come to his flock. And he finds those that are supposed to be his under-shepherds herding the sheep, his sheep, acting more like wolves than shepherds. He says they are harassed. They're cast down. They're weary. They're scattered. They're hunted by those who should be defending them. Instead of, right, we saw this, right? Instead of the Pharisees pointing to Jesus and saying, here's the chief shepherd. Follow him, submit to him, trust him, love him, worship him. They're, they're saying he's possessed by a demon. It's the epitome of evil for them to be doing this. This is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, isn't it? In Ezekiel 34, the Lord prophesies judgments against the failed leadership of Israel who have become more like wolves than shepherds. He says this, Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you haven't healed, the injured you haven't bound up, the strayed you haven't brought back, the lost you haven't sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to seek them. But then the Lord promises in the same passage that he's going to come. He's going to be the shepherd. He's going to seek his sheep. He says, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And isn't that what Jesus has been doing? Here's the true shepherd, the true king, and he's come to heal his hurting people. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's found them scattered and defenseless, and he is deeply moved with compassion and love for them to his very core. And he comes with his awesome power, coupled with that sweet tenderness to save them, to bring his kingdom of healing and salvation. But the focus here is on this, right? Jesus, 
He's bringing his kingdom. He's the chief shepherd come to his people. But the focus is he wants under shepherds. Right? He, he wants good leaders, godly leaders, right? Ambassadors for this kingdom that he's bringing. People to represent him and, and, and multiply the, the ministry and go out themselves and proclaim his kingdom. And so as we come to the end of chapter 9, as Jesus looks at the multitudes and he's moved with compassion with them, because they're like sheep without a shepherd, the solution for him, say they need, they need more good under shepherds under me, right? representatives of my kingdom to tell them about me. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He looks around him. The kingdom's coming. It's harvest time. End time harvest. Bringing in all, the, all of God's elect to his kingdom. It's here. It's come. But there's no one to represent me and to preach my gospel. So he says, we need, we need to pray. He commands his disciples to pray. He's going to send them out as his representatives in chapter 10. That's what's coming. But here at the end of chapter 9, He wants them to start by praying. First, before you go out and represent me and preach my gospel, pray that God would raise up many to work for his kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus' words to his disciples are also his words to us, aren't they? Um, His kingdom is coming. He's still the king, bringing his kingdom. The harvest is still plentiful, isn't it? And... uh, uh, he, he has come, and, and he wants us to be praying and seeking out a great harvest as well. Um, we often talk about how the church is losing influence, how the culture is growing secular, right? We're in stony heart of New England. Um, but Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. My kingdom is coming. He looks, he looks at, at, at the whole world, and he says, the harvest is plentiful. The end-time kingdom is coming. So Pray. Pray that, pray that God would raise up many to be representing his kingdom. To, 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 be, to be praying, God, God is calling us, Christ is calling us to plead with God to send out pastors and missionaries and teachers and every ordinary Christian to be ambassadors for his kingdom. So this is his command to us, right? Jesus, moved by compassion for the suffering, wants us to join with his other disciples in praying that his laborers would be many, that God would raise up many to do this. Brothers and sisters, um, as, we, as we conclude this morning, we've considered some glorious things about our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen his power. We've seen him demonstrate that power through his compassion for sinners and sufferers. We've seen him heal the sick and and all this telling us that he's the king and his kingdom is coming, his kingdom is here. Um, The question for us then is, are we going to join with him in praying for his kingdom to come yet more? To, 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 To give everything to him and follow him with all we are? Right, not to deny who he is like the Pharisees. Not like the two blind men to after he's healed us to go on and uh, not completely obey him. But to marvel at who he is and then join with him in praying for his kingdom to come. Right, this, is, this is what our lives are to be dominated by. What our church is to be all about. That the king has come and we are joining in that kingdom work with Christ. Praying that he would raise up more and more to proclaim 
this great King Jesus and this good King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your power and Your pity which found us out and saved us from our sin. And Lord, we pray that You would make us to be more faithful in our zeal for Your kingdom and our devotion to You, our King. And Lord, make us to pray more diligently for Your kingdom to come for your glory to be seen and known, and for your salvation to spread over all this earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.